It's Friday, October 2nd. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, college presidents and how they've shaped race and society. Scholar Eddie Cole is out with a new book this week, The Campus Color Line. He talks to our Jonathan Friedman about how higher education has and hasn't served the fight for racial equality, and he discusses a controversy over college football. Then it's time for Tough Questions with Suzanne Nossel. She reflects on the poisonous debate rhetoric from President Trump, disinformation about mail-in balloting coming from the highest leaders, and what Pen America is doing to fight back. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on the Pen Pod. Higher education, race, free speech, and football. Our Jonathan Friedman has that interview. Eddie Cole is Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at the University of California, Los Angeles. His new book, The Campus Color Line, focuses on the history of college presidents during the fight for racial equity from 1948 to 1968. Welcome to the PenPod, Eddie. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. So um, I thought I'd start just by asking if you to tell us a little bit about the book. What's important to know about the role of college presidents in the 50s and 60s? <laughs> oh, that's that's a great opening. Uh, so ultimately, the book is a history of the black freedom movement as seen through the actions of college presidents. And it's important to know that the book is national in scope, uh, what I call a national cohort of college presidents. And so that gives a, a variety of institutional types within the book as well. Right. So we're talking about our traditional, predominantly white institutions, the segregated, all white institutions in the South, but also historically black colleges. you got your private and public institutions. Uh, that range across, you know, from coast to coast. And in the process of this book and understanding the role of college presidents, um, I went from the Northeast across the Midwest out here to the West Coast and then through the South. And ultimately what I found and argue in the book is that college presidents were critical actors in shaping racial policies and practices in America. So academic leaders in the 50s and 60s took on an incredible um, just a credible amount of importance um, in post-war America as elected officials, both on the state level and federal level, as well as business leaders, uh, started to lean heavily on college presidents to help them address the nation's racial problems as globally the United States started having issues uh, trying to uh, push its message of democracy when it had the blatant hypocrisy of racial segregation. At home. Right. Yeah. Right. Is there a lot of difference across the types of institutions? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you, you, I, in the book, you have a chance to engage with uh, Ivy League campuses, uh, the major Midwest, the big universities uh, across the Midwest. You get out to the West Coast. And what's really interesting, uh, you know, myself at UCLA, at the time that I'm studying UCLA, it isn't nearly the university that it is today. And that gives a nice uh, bit of flavor, too, when you think about the Black Freedom Movement and academic leadership. At the time, UCLA has less than 200 <laughs> students who reside on campus. It's largely a commuter campus uh, with aspirations of building out into uh, a campus more similar to how Berkeley was at the time. Uh, mm. So it's pretty interesting when you get this flavor of uh, regional colleges, uh, large universities, private, public, uh, is one of, one of the things that I'm most proud about the book 
is that regardless of your engagement with higher education, if you've even um, somewhat, in, you know, loosely followed higher education, you will find an institution that you're familiar with that you perhaps have an experience with. It's not just the usual major players featured in the book. Right. A lot of diversity of uh, institutions. Absolutely. Um, so there's, the, there's, I'm curious to ask, there's a standard narrative of how higher education expands, you know, opportunity becomes more diverse in the second half of the 20th century. I'd be curious to know what your book adds to that narrative. Yeah, you know, the, the book um, builds upon and intervenes with, obviously, a ton of previous historians' work. Uh, I'm thinking about James Anderson's The Education of Blacks in the South that follows um, Black education opportunities uh, post-slavery through Reconstruction into the early 1900s, as well as Vanessa Siddle Walker, a historian at Emory University, has done a phenomenal body of work around Black educational leaders, but also uh, histories that have focused more on contemporary time frames on the higher education level. Uh, I'm thinking of Stephen Bradley, who's at Loyola Marymount out here in Los Angeles County. Uh, has done phenomenal work uh, studying Harlem versus Columbia. It's one of his first books, but also Upending the Ivory Tower. Joel Williamson Lott, Martha Biondi, Ibram Kendi. I mean, they, they've all done these uh, phenomenal higher education histories that I, I've engaged with. And so ultimately what my book adds to that narrative is my book gets into um, the administrative standpoint from what's going on in higher education history. So what I always like to tell people is that we've all got some familiarity with the 1960s and the 1950s and student protests and student activism. And oftentimes in all of these histories, college presidents make a cameo, (laughs) I like to say. Uh, They they, they make an appearance and is usually framed 100% as how did the administration, how did college presidents respond uh, to student activism, which uh, that's a very important take. That's a very important perspective to have when writing from the perspective of the student activist. Uh, but I sort of flip the perspective around, if you will, and look at administrators and not only how did they respond to student activism, I, I move beyond the point of responses, but I look at how they were actually rather proactive in shaping so many different aspects of American life that we don't typically think about. And for instance, um, in the book, I talk about how urban renewal and the process of housing discrimination in major cities across the United States, that comes out of University of Chicago administrative leaders rallying other college presidents together to actually lobby before uh, Congress for (laughs) federal funding that went behind urban renewal programs. I mean, we just don't typically think about individual presidents uh, being the point people in how that unfolded. We know universities expanded and displaced numerous um, Black communities throughout America, but just how did they do it? Um, or also thinking about college presidents and the their role in expanding higher education, but there's some uh, there's a caveat with that expansion, right? Think of the mm. California system. There's the University of California system. There's the California State University system, and then there's the two year the community college system. And what kind of uh, barriers were in place? Um, around who gets into what system, right? There's this social hierarchy that still exists today around these different university systems. And we know they exist, but also it's the how that they come to be uh, that my book really gets into. 
Uh, and so that's just a few of the ways that my book adds to this narrative that that shows that, yes, there is this expansion of opportunity and diversity in higher education, but also uh, there are a lot of um, failed attempts along the way that we haven't quite lived up to, uh, oftentimes the way the narrative portrays that era. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, thinking about some of the issues in the book uh, that are still issues today, one of the most prominent ones that we've seen is the question of free speech on college campuses. So mm. it's interesting to think of how that was an issue in the 50s and 60s, the student activists uh, that you're talking about in the book and the Black Freedom Movement. In your head, what's changed since the conflicts of 50, 60 years ago? How are they different now? <laughs> uh, in many ways, um, they have and haven't changed. Uh, and so ultimately, I, I say things are the same in the sense that college presidents now are still grappling with how to deal with, say, uh, your traditional white supremacists that um, expects to speech on campus, right? Um, and the potential of violence and the public uh, critique of that and all the things that come with that, even just the pure expense of security, uh, we can see that in headlines um, today. But also in a lot of ways, you know, what I noticed in studying uh, college presidents uh, is that what has changed most often, and this is probably such a unique takeaway, because I look at free speech before the free speech movement of 64, uh, but what, what I see in the book among administrative leadership is that there are oftentimes in the 50s and 60s, a university president could actually step out on their personal beliefs in the sense of pushing for free speech, but also taking a hardline stance on how things should change around a speech opportunity. And just a little snippet in the book, um, some of the segregationist governors in the South uh, really grew in popularity and had their very own speaking tours outside of the South, uh, going from Harvard to Yale to Princeton. I mean, you name a university, uh, they oftentimes showed up. And one particular instance, a uh, college president in the book, uh, I worked through this narrative around how this president used uh, racists coming to campus to speak as an opportunity to actually put behind the university's talking points some actual actions that supported how uh, the university actually stood for racial equality. And so, uh, but one of the interesting things in the narrative is the president actually goes before the trustees and makes a statement that says he was unable to um, separate his personal beliefs uh, from his role as this title as president. And this is unfolding with Robert Goheen at Princeton University, who's just a fascinating figure. Um, in individually on his own, much less in the, in the context of other presidents. So it, when you think about that opportunity, you don't see that as much today. And I often wonder, as I was pulling the book together, how much uh, has the contemporary setting of college presidents being so uh, politically connected, if you will, on such a high level uh, that they, um, they're strategic, they're, they, they, they're less likely to stand out Um <laughs> On their mm. personal beliefs, um, and you see these very sort of um, canned responses oftentimes from academic leaders today. And so I wonder, um, you know, just the, the differences between what the position has evolved into compared to what it was in the 50s and 60s, most often with someone who was much more closely connected to their previous role as a faculty member. And now you sort of have um, 
people who've been in administration so long, so many decades before. And it's, it's quite fascinating. No, it's a, well, yeah, it's a huge difference. And you can imagine how that changes, you know, their willingness to speak, their willingness to take risks and the, the issues on which, which they might champion. Um, well, that brings me to one of the current issues that's been in the news, which is about the revival of uh, college football during the pandemic. You recently <laughs> wrote in the Washington Post that that reviving football, playing football this year would, quote, continue to devalue black lives. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of how you see this issue in higher education. And are there college leaders today that you think are addressing the calls for racial equity and justice well, adequately? Yeah, I mean, this this push for major college football right now is directly connected to what I've seen throughout history in the sense that um, you, you see administrative leaders who um, see a particular moment and they contradict themselves. And what I what I mean by that is um, post the uh, recent uh, police state sanctioned killings of, say, George Floyd in Minneapolis or Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, you, you saw numerous academic leaders release statements about the value of black lives on their campuses and how they stand with um, uh, citizens and students who are in, up in arms about these most recent uh, high profile uh, killings of unarmed black people. And so what you see is you get that statement on one hand, but then this global pandemic that we in has well documented um, disproportionate impact on um, black communities um, particular. And so when you see uh, student athletes such as football, where the vast majority of these athletes, uh, we're talking about 50, 60, 70% on some teams are black, what does it mean to ask those particular students uh, to come back and participate in a sport that grosses billions of dollars, but they're unpaid outside of the uh, traditional student athlete stipend uh, to come to campus and run the risk of not only contracting it themselves, uh, even though there's an argument about the how lethal it is for people in that age range, uh, but also what does it mean for those students to want to go see their family on their off weekend um, or, you know, be around friends who may have pre-existing conditions or maybe more high risk. Um, and so you see this, you know, ultimately what I was arguing is there's this sort of historical arc, if you will, around college presidents who have used these particular social moments. Uh, we saw it in the 1960s to co-opt language similar to what the movement was using, but also still in behavior and action um, contradict themselves and uh, continue to take actions that would devalue black lives. I discuss it in my book, uh, particularly as we think about affirmative action. Um, and what that initially was planned to look like, the initial affirmative action programs in higher education were focused on black colleges, um, not predominantly on a select number of white institutions around college admissions. And so it's really interesting that in the book, I show how college presidents sort of co-opted that moment and made it very much about uh, their campuses. And um, <clears throat> as we see right now, again, coming around to major football, um, seeing this moment where, again, um, the campus is put before uh, actual black lives. Yeah, I mean, really concerning, really, uh, uh, you know, certainly raises questions about hypocrisy and uh, inconsistency in between mission and action behavior and um, canned statements, if you will. Um, all right. Final question for you. What are you reading right now? <laughs> 
Uh, that that is a great question. I never thought I'd become one of those people who have rotating between three books. But so I've got um, Adam Gadichu, uh, a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, her book, World Making After Empire, uh, also in Princeton University Press, and it's ultimately about imperialism and following the decolonization uh, of Africa. Um, I've I've just been more uh, fascinated in, in the book. Um, and just trying to contextualize this particular global moment that we're in, uh, trying to understand, you know, we, we have a lot of activists using language around uh, decolonizing the curriculum, uh, but also just trying to see from a national perspective. That book's on my shelf, and it's quite a fascinating uh, fascinating piece of work. Definitely yeah. worth checking out, World Making After Empire. And then two other books I have on my shelf, Carl Sutler, historian at Emory University, uh, presumed criminal on New York University Press. Uh, quite interesting look at um, black youth and um, police policing in New York City uh, after World War II. And um, if you want to understand this current moment that we're in right now, any calls for defunding the police or abolishing police, uh, that's a great book with a historical perspective that's so spot on. It's scary how eerily similar um, it is um, connected to today. And then the final book, uh, Revisiting a Classic, uh, W.B. Du Bois, um, Black, uh, Black Reconstruction uh, in America. And that is, uh, again, as we think about right now, as people are making calls to, um, um, to have this sort of racial reckoning on a national scale, uh, Du Bois's work is just so insightful for understanding how these opportunities, how these moments of uh, social reconstruction, if you will, have come before and how he just tears it apart. It's just just a just just a genius book, um, just worth revisiting, uh, particularly in this moment as we think about how history has been used strategically um, in the past. And what does it mean to do uh, historical work like myself and think about history in a, in a truth seeking manner? Um, and what does it really mean for us as we try to um, work toward the present? I, I mean, the power of history and uh, certainly much to reflect on in the current moment. Um, well, thanks for being here. Eddie Cole, Associate Professor from UCLA. The book is The Campus Color Line, now available from Princeton University Press. Take care, Eddie. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for Tough Questions, where we put our tricky free speech questions to Penn America's CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. Suzanne, let's start with the presidential debate on Tuesday night, wherein President Trump bullied, steamrolled, and lied his way through 90 hard-to-watch minutes. I'm wondering, is free speech um, and it, is open dialogue best served by these kinds of debates? And what could we be doing differently? Well, look, I think everybody acknowledges that the debate was a rolling disaster. And now we have the Presidential Debate Commission looking into rule changes that could potentially pave the way for a more civil discourse. But we know what's at the root of this, which is a president who does his business through bullying and denigrating and browbreeding and steamrolling. And you know, we've been pointing that out for many years, beginning with his attacks on the press in the 2016 campaign, you know, his menacing of journalists at press conferences, 
denigrating the media as the enemy of the American people. And so that was on full display. And, you know, at some level, perhaps there is a, a, a bright side in that Americans saw him for who he was. And I think people, a lot of people were pretty disgusted, you know, maybe not in all quarters, but people recognize this is not someone who came to discuss issues, to enlighten voters about substantive differences, to, you know, bore into the details of policy or even character, but rather to make ad hominem attacks. And so while I think it was a very unfortunate display and, you know, to the degree, you know, my children were watching, a lot of other people have told me about their children watching and just this very uneasy kind of stomach churning sense that you know, this is what is being modeled from the highest levels of our government. And it's undignified, it's unreasoned, and it's not the kind of example we want to set for how people from different parties and ideologies can come together in discussion. I mean, I contrast it with debates that I've watched and judged for students. And, you know, there you see people taking, you know, staunchly opposing positions and often, you know, having a tough discussion uh, that goes back and forth, but it doesn't descend into interruption, obfuscation, and just raw nastiness, which is what we saw the other night. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in future rounds. Is there a different Donald Trump that can come to the foreground. And what does that man look like and sound like? Because I'm not sure we've seen him really be able to put a lid on this in any kind of sustained way. And then I think there's a genuine debate on the part of the debate organizers about, you know, is it appropriate, for example, for the moderator to have the power to turn off the mic of the president of the United States or the Democratic nominee, you know, is that going to be construed as silencing and shutting down and interfering with free speech rights. And so I expect that to be an issue that arises in the next round. Yeah. I mean, the president spent a good portion of the debate, again, talking to tens of millions of people, you know, basically delegitimizing perfectly secure ways to vote, including mail-in and absentee balloting. You know, when you have the president of the United States making comments like this, truly being an agent of, of disinformation. How are we supposed to fight back against that? You know, it's interesting because Chris Wallace, the moderator, made the decision and announced ahead of time he was not going to be fact-checking the candidates. And so he did not come in to rebut or refute any of this. And Joe Biden, I think, while he was very uh, strong and cogent and clear with his own answers, you know, really couldn't, would have taken up all of his time if he had to rebut these falsehoods, you know, one by one. And so understandably didn't do so. But the net result was, if you watched it, you know, the president's portrayal of an election system, you know, with the wheels coming off and, you know, all these, this ballot stuffing and illegitimate ballots being cast and counted would stand. And I think that's very dangerous. It goes to the problem that the social media platforms have been grappling with for years, which is what do you do when the vector of disinformation is the president of the United States? You know, you, you can't well, and the media, the mainstream media as well, because you can't well not cover him. You know, you couldn't, uh, if, if ABC and CNN 
had shut off the television when he started to say this sort of stuff, there would have been absolute uproar and outrage because he is the president and he has that Billy Pulpit. And, and with that comes an entitlement to the platform and the audience. And yet he uses it to purvey information that if somebody else put it out, you know, would be discredited, you know, at, at this point on social media, you know, flagged as, as misinformation. And they are doing that more even with statements from the president. But I think we're at a very dangerous moment. I mean, this is, you know, ultimately curbing disinformation depends upon leadership. And when sort of the rot goes to the core uh, and the problem is, is coming from inside the house, it's difficult to root out. We're doing a lot of work at Penn America on what I think is the ultimate solution to this problem, which is to inoculate the public so that they are more discerning in terms of what to believe. Now, you wouldn't think you'd have to teach children in American schools that when it comes to the president of the United States, they need to fact check his every statement. You know, that didn't used to be true. What a president would say in a speech or a press conference or at a debate would be carefully vetted. They'd have the best research. It would be all up to date. They'd have staff members who are ensuring, you know, the worst thing in the world would be for the president to say something that was disproven later on. That would be considered absolutely discrediting. And that has just been lost in this administration. And I think there's a, a big question about whether and how we can get it back. So let's talk about that inoculation, because um, we've obviously this week kicked off uh, what to expect when you're electing our big push between now and Election Day. You know, what are we as PEN America up to in the weeks ahead and how can our our members, our supporters and our friends uh, be involved? Sure. So we just launched this campaign officially this week under the banner of what to expect when you're electing. And it builds on work we've been doing for years on disinformation in the political context. We did a report back in 2017 that really set out why it is that disinformation, even though so much of it is protected by the First Amendment, the First Amendment you know, really doesn't help us when it comes to combating this problem, but that it nonetheless constitutes a grave threat to free expression and civic discourse because the right to free speech is more than just being able to say whatever comes to mind. It's the right to be able to persuade and engage with others. And you know, the whole purpose, and I, I talk about this in my book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. You know, why do we defend free speech in the in the first place? And it's because we believe that an open environment for ideas is going to help truth and innovation and the best ideas rise to the foreground. And when the, the, that environment is flooded with disinformation, that function is impaired. And so we see it as a real threat to free expression. We feel like that has come to full bloom over the last four years. And so in the run-up to the election, we're doing a whole series of things. We produced a, a fantastic video that I hope everybody watches with John Lithgow and Alan Cumming and Anita Hill. Britt Bennett and others on disinformation. And it's it's funny and it's witty and it's short and you can find it on our website. We've done a whole series of events, including a closed door meeting with senior people from different news organizations to talk about how they're gonna cover this election like no other and avoid themselves becoming vectors for disinformation. We've provided tip sheets to individuals, including on how to 
talk to your friends and family about disinformation. It's an awkward topic to bring up to tell someone that something they've shared is false. And yet we have to kind of gently call one another in and out uh, on this or otherwise it's going to continue to spread unfettered. And we have a whole series of live events with the Washington Post that we're doing. We started yesterday that are reaching a mass audience to help people understand the ways in which this election night is going to be different from all others. And our, our premise here is that the more informed people are, the better they know what to expect, the less vulnerable they'll be to disinformation and conspiracy theories. So it's an all out effort over the next sort of four and a half weeks to try to get that message across. Yeah, we got about a month and a day until Election Day. So it is a full-on sprint. Suzanne Nassel is author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She's CEO of PAN America. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, October 2nd. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you Monday. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.